I continue to be reminded that honesty is a craft, like any art form, that we have to hone. There has to be a sculpting of way of all the lies and the half-truths to this kind of blunt, raw, ugly, extraordinary, and liberating honesty. So I can bring that to my work. You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is your host, Stephen Roach. This is season three, episode four. In this episode, I'm going to introduce you to best-selling author, Josh Reebok. Josh is known for his honest and poetic storytelling, combining philosophy, raw emotion, and uncommon insight into the human condition. His memoir, Heroes and Monsters, is a ragged look into a world at once wildly twisted and profoundly beautiful, an expose of both the hero and the monster within all of us. I had the chance to sit down with Josh for a conversation on the role of honesty within artistry and how pain and beauty are sometimes inextricably linked. I'm thrilled as well to let you know Josh will be joining us at the Breath in the Clay Gathering March 23rd through 25th, 2018. As a reminder, early bird ticket sales and artist submissions end December 31st. So be sure to get your tickets today. And if you'd like to submit your artwork for consideration in our gallery, you can do so at thebreathintheclay.com. One final note before we dive into the conversation, there is one moment of mild language in this episode I wanted to make you aware of. This is my conversation with Josh Reebok on honesty in artistry. Josh, thank you so much for being with me on Makers and Mystics. It's an honor to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, we've been talking back and forth for quite a while now. It's been a minute, as they say. It has. I think you've moved about two or three cities uh, since we first started our conversation. Is that right? Yeah, although that's not why. I wasn't I wasn't like, oh, here comes Steven, I better move again. <laughs> that's right. He's tracking me down. Yeah. 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 Well, I you know, I will say that I did track you down a bit in the beginning because I read your book Heroes and Monsters and when I read it, I was just so impacted by it, not only by the content and by what you were writing about, but also how it was written and just the the creative way that you approached the memoir. And so I was like, I've, I've got to reach out to this guy. I believe he's a kindred spirit, and I'm going to find out if I'm right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, and, right. Uh, and I think you were in Charleston, South Carolina at the time, maybe. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. And I, and I loved hearing from you, man. I mean, that, me, that's such a, to me, that's a, an extraordinary compliment to receive um, and, and from someone who, who really has a care for the creative um, to know that someone values not just what's conveyed, but the method by which it's conveyed Absolutely. is always a compliment. So thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's good. I, I have a handful of writers that have just been so inspiring to me. And it, it's not only what they say, but it's their way. It's like, it's almost sometimes the content of what they're saying is secondary to the way that I feel or the way that they say it. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, I guess I'm a proponent of the idea that actually 
the method or the style by which something conveyed actually reveals a lot more about that person than what they're conveying. Yeah. And so in that way, it's an extremely intimate mm-hmm. thing to be invited into when you come across something that's maybe a little more odd. Mm-hmm. Because it's like you get kind of a glimpse into them that more traditional or orthodox styles don't yeah. necessarily allow. And in doing so, I think we let our own guards down in the process to receive what's being said. Yeah. Uh, I think that's so true. And your book totally did that for me. And we can get into some of the nuts and bolts of that in just a bit, if you'd like. Um, but I just thought it was amazing. So, <laughs> Well, thanks, man. Again, that, mean, that means a lot to me. Thank yeah. you. Well, since we're talking about influences and writers, who are some of the writers that have impacted your journey? Yeah. Can, do I have to limit it to writers? No, not at all. Okay, good. Because I, I always feel bad because I'm like, well... I don't know. I probably don't read as much as like people people like assume. Uh, so yeah. some of the some of the individuals that inspire me. Um, I mean, on the writing side, on the on the literary side. Uh, I mean, to me, William Shakespeare is kind of owns the Mount Rushmore of writing to himself. <laughs> right, right. Uh, every, every time I read anything he writes, um, I, I feel like I I have to pause and go. I'm pretty sure this is impossible. Mm-hmm. And so him. Uh, Cormac McCarthy, Charles Bukowski, who oh, is yeah. a beat poet from the '60s, who absolutely just adore mm-hmm. his like just blunt, like kind of cut you style poetry is just so <laughs> moving to me. Um, Salman Rushdie, um, uh, I'm a pretty big fan of Anthony Burgess, Gabriel Marquez. Uh, I mean, I I could go on, but but if I transition to to more like music, classical music does something for me that I don't I don't quite understand. Mm. And I think that's probably part of the reason why I love it is because I don't understand it. I don't understand what's happening to me in the midst of it. And so I love classical music more on a modern on a modern side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, Jack White. I was listening to Jack White right before you. He does this. He does this cover of a, a Dolly Parton song, Jolene. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Feels like a werewolf is singing <laughs> it. It's so cool. I love that one. Oh, it's so good. Nirvana. But then I'm I'm highly inspired by visual stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm a, for better or for worse, um, I, I'm kind of a, what would be called a sybarite where I, I'm very like sensually indulgent, you know, mm-hmm. through all mm-hmm. of my senses. Mm-hmm. And so film and television is a, is a potent form of inspiration for me. I try to make a mark to watch two movies, about two movies every week. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite movies is a movie called Bronson. It's uh, director Nicholas Winding Refn, who's a Danish director. It was one of Tom Hardy's first movies. It's about this British prisoner named Charles Bronson. Mm. Uh, there Will Be Blood, uh, oh, yeah. The Shining. Oh, yeah. Recently, I, I rewatched Seven by David Fincher and Silence of the Lambs. Oh, yeah. So, and, and then, of course, I, I you know mortgaged all last weekend watching Stranger Things. Of course, of course, <laughs> absolutely. Don't tell, don't tell me anything because I've only watched the first episode of the of the new season so far. I've been trying to pace myself. I didn't. Most of my friends have binge watched the whole thing, but okay. Oh man, <laughs> I, I I can't I can't stop. Like I, it's like you know, for me watching that is the same as Sour Patch Kids. It's like yeah. if I open it, it's it's gone. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be at the bottom. There's something about I don't know. I I, I guess. For me, I feel like my sense of creativity and inspiration, contemplation, it just withers so fast unless I am constantly uh, banqueting on on other people's work. Mm-hmm. So to me, that is so integral 
um, to what I do. In fact, when I'm writing at my worst, and it feels like a lot of times that's happening more than I'm writing at my best, mm. if I trace it back, oftentimes the root of it, it, it sometimes is I'm tired. Sometimes it's, you know, some strange, elusive reason. Mm-hmm. But, then, but then frequently, it's, it's uh, if I ask myself the question, when's the last time I read, listened to, or saw something that inspired me, a lot of times it's because I've waited too long. Mm. So I have to just kind of go and glutton again, and yeah. then it sparks some things. Yeah. That's amazing, man. And, and, you know, it's interesting because I know you primarily as a poet and as an author, and so my immediate question was, well, who are your inspirations? Who are the writers who have inspired you? But then you immediately went to these other art forms and it yeah. just it just triggered that in me. I'm like, of course, even in my own life, I think that I become a better musician when I read incredible authors or I, I become a better writer when I go and I see incredible artwork and I try to fill our house here in North Carolina with incredible works of art from friends yeah. that, that I've just collected. And it's kind of that synesthesia thing, right. if you, you know yep. what I mean? It's, it's yep. like, I, I, I think all of the art forms interpret one another. And mm. I don't know if you have anything to speak into that more, but. Well, I mean, yeah, I think the, when, I think the greatest art, those kind of levees that separate the senses kind of come down. Mm-hmm. And there, there's a little more of a kind of vortex amongst them all that's happening. I mean, in the same way that for me, uh, a lot of times when it comes to writing, some of the most potent writing is the writing that I can see. Mm-hmm. Or, it's, or it's the music where, where it's so the, I resonate so much with the lyrics. Yeah. And ultimately, to me, there's no amount of technical ability that can rescue art if it's void of emotion. Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And so to me, the highest value in inhaling all these art forms is that it awakens me to how I feel. It awakens me to a sense of honesty. Mm-hmm. It emboldens me to try things. Mm-hmm. And so it's less about necessarily the, the craft of writing, but it's the craft of being human. Mm-hmm. It's the craft of honesty. And, and I'm a, I continue to be reminded through my own struggle to do it, that honesty is a craft mm-hmm. like any art form that we have to hone. Um, you know, one of my, my favorite, or at least uh, of late, one of the, my favorite quotes is, is Michelangelo. And he's, and he, he was asked a question about this angel sculpture that he had, he had finished. And the question was, you know, how did, how did you do this? And he, he paused and scratched his chin and said, I saw the angel in the marble and carved until I set him free. Mm-hmm. The idea is like he saw this thing before it was released, right? And then he worked until he got it. Well, I find that from an emotional standpoint, and when I view those words, um, not just through the lens of, a, of an artistic medium, but just through being human, there has to be a sculpting of way of all the lies and the half-truths mm-hmm. to this kind of blunt, raw, ugly, extraordinary and liberating honesty mm-hmm. so i can bring that to my work like i said I, I don't think that there's any amount of technical uh, aptitude that can rescue it so you brought up honesty and that's actually at the heart of some of what I wanted to ask you about because when I read your work and when I've heard you speak um, 
there's a raw honesty about what you carry that I really love. It's infectious. It's also rare. And I talk a lot in my own writings and, and when I'm out doing lectures and seminars and stuff about the courage to create and the courage, you know, how creativity requires vulnerability. And just for the people listening that maybe aren't familiar with Heroes and Monsters, the book is, is a memoir about your family experience and growing up and with your father and your mother and, and just real intimate portrayals of, of some very difficult things you went through. And so I would love to hear more about that honesty and, and how did you grow to be such an honest artist? Is, is that something you had to work at? Um, yes. <laughs> I mean, in short, yes. Um, and I, I suppose for some of the reasons we just mentioned, but, but I feel like that I'm, I, I still feel like I'm so full of shit. Right. Right. I, I really do. And I have so many moments when Kind of as I reflect on a conversation, perhaps my wife and I have gone out with some people and I leave going, wow, I really wanted to impress them. Mm -hmm. And I see how the way I interacted is a reflection of that. Mm -hmm. And so for me, a lot of the, the process of getting to honesty, I mean, one, I mean, th there's, there's a lot of facets, but the one that immediately comes to mind is honesty can't happen without awareness, right? Mm -hmm. We typically, sometimes when we feel like someone is maybe lying or hiding something, they're doing so unintentionally. They don't even know what to be honest about. Mm -hmm. And so part of what I have had to develop as a discipline is that sense of contemplation, that sense of quiet, that sense of meditation so I can confront these things before I can even decide whether I'm brave enough to share them. Right, right. And that, that for me is, is more frightening than, than sharing stuff. Mm -hmm. It's coming face to face with it myself. Mm -hmm. Is going, wow, I, I don't like this person. Wow, I'm angry at this individual in my life. Wow, I completely despise um, all the previous iterations of who I've been. And what do I do with that? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times when I find that sort of vacuum of honesty, I, I don't necessarily find it to be an intentional choice by somebody or myself, but it's it's unintentional because I haven't done the work to become aware. Mm -hmm. That's really good. So when you talk about cultivating honesty, it really begins in contemplation and awareness. I mean, for me, it does. And we all, I, I suppose, you know, none of this is groundbreaking, but it requires me to have relationships that as best we can are really, really void of pretense. Mm -hmm. And I have a few of those people in my life and without them, I feel like I become so untethered so quickly. Mm -hmm. So I need people in my life who are bold enough as friends mm -hmm. to take me there when I'm not willing to go. Yeah. And then my job to do the work that that stuff tills up and hopefully to do the work to engage those conversations when they occur. But I don't know, man. I've, I've heard it said, you know, they, they say poetry is like honesty and people don't like honesty. Well, you mentioned Charles Bukowski earlier, and I think that's about as raw and honest as you get. Oh, oh man. <laughs> I love Bukowski. I mean, he's he's an acquired taste for a lot of people, I think. Yeah. Uh, but I put Bukowski in the same category as Tom Waits, who is one of my musical heroes. I uh, absolutely love Tom Waits. I don't know if you spend any time with him, but his album Bone Machine is is one of my one of my favorites. And um, 
talk about honesty. Tom Waits is another one that just brings a brutal honesty, but he's tactful. And and that was the question I wanted to ask you as well is, I think that there's a, there's a tactfulness because I, at least as I'm just thinking out loud here, it seems like a ditch on either side of the road. You, if you fall in the ditch over here, you're into pretense and then there's dishonesty within the artwork and it remains shallow and you never really touch anybody on that heart level. I think there can be a, a ditch and you can maybe respond to this as well, but on the other side where if we're going to be this honest and this raw and this open, it's almost like the skill of a surgeon is it's required sometimes or we end up just slashing. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it can be it can be wielded as a really harmful weapon, mm-hmm. and and I I always I, I'm not sure how to feel um, when when people say, well, because it's honest, they you know through through various language, it it seems sometimes it's it's presented that because it's honest, I'm therefore permitted to say it, right? You know, I'm just keeping it real or whatever, and <laughs> and for me, honesty without discernment is weaponized. Mm-hmm. That's good. And even further, I would say honesty without empathy is weaponized. That's really good. So there has to be for me, and I struggle with it, and I don't, I think sometimes I'm, I'm pleased with the way I do it. And then other times I look back and go, man, I got it. I have a lot of maturation, you know, that I, that needs to take place for me to do that better. But I know that empathy and honesty ought to go hand in hand. Yes. So that when I'm saying something or when I'm communicating something, that there can be a sense of where are the, where are other people in the in the metaphorical room, so to speak. Like where are they, and how might they hear this? And that doesn't mean we don't be honest, but maybe it means that the timing needs to be considered, and sometimes it needs to be um, said in ways that people can receive it. I mean, it's the difference between wanting to be listened to and wanting to be heard. Mm-hmm. And if we just want to be listened to, yeah, say anything you want. But if you really want to be heard in a way that people can receive and benefit from, be inspired by, or whatever. Um, I think it requires a, a few additional questions that I that I, you know, have to navigate. I mean, but having said that, um, I also think that sometimes people just need to be offended. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, I depending upon people's worldviews or you know whether that's their religion or their politics. A lot of times, we think being misunderstood or offending people is like the worst thing that can happen, and maybe that's true in instances. But sometimes, it's the best thing that can happen. That's really good, man. I think that goes back to the tactfulness that we were talking about is knowing when I need to speak this and it's going to offend. People may not agree with this or people may not resonate with this. It, it may cause a stir, but my commitment to honesty leads me here, you know? And then in other occasions, maybe it's like, maybe I need to, to do this a little bit more delicately right now. And I think that's what you say, honesty without discernment can be weaponized. I love that. Yeah, and and there's something too about I find that at times I've done myself and people in general and what we are as human beings when I reduce myself down to one honesty, right? Mm-hmm. And I think if I'm not communicating this honesty, then I'm being deceitful and it's like, well, is that really true though? Because as a person, I am diversified and complex enough inside that just because I'm not communicating one honesty mm-hmm. doesn't mean I'm not communicating another. Right. And so to boil our, myself down to one thing to say, well, if I don't say this about, it, I feel this way about this, then then I'm a fraud. I, I think I I would say that that is erroneous too. Hmm. That makes me think. I didn't come across your book as 
a particularly Christian or religious book, I came across it as a memoir. And and then when I found that subject matter in it, I loved it all the more for me, <laughs> you know? Um, but I wonder if, if some of your writing process, did you know what you wanted to reveal and who you were talking to, or did that come as you just were laying it out there? Yeah, I mean, uh, at the risk of sounding completely stupid, I don't think I knew. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Um, but I do think there's something to the fact that uh, I, you know, for me, and this is not necessarily true of anyone else, I don't work well when I have an audience in mind. Mm-hmm. Because then I find myself bending the narrative to what I'm speculating those individuals will find palatable or impalatable. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I mean, I think of, you know, T.S. Eliot talks about how art is the process of self-extinction. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what he means. And, you know, his intelligence probably belies my ability to comprehend it. But what I take from that is if while I'm creating, my concern is what people are going to think of me, that I'm not making art. That's good. There has to be for me, and in Heroes and Monster, there was, there was just a, I don't know, I'm just going to make it like this. Mm-hmm. And I'm a trust on some level that I am not so unique that there aren't a lot of other people like me. Yeah, absolutely. But rather than having them in mind, because I, I, again, and I think some people probably work really effectively that way. I just don't. I I tend to work on a very inward level. Mm -hmm. Well, I think work on a really outward level. But so for me, it was much more about becoming acquainted with me rather than speculating on on my acquaintances. Mm -hmm. But in that, I felt I felt a lot of autonomy that was really helpful. And and as far as that I, I will say that the way I wanted to write it, and you know, it's pretty liberally categorized as as memoir. I mean, there's a lot of fiction in it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, there's a talking cow, and it's mm-hmm. illustrated in parts like a graphic novel by a really remarkable artist. Um, but I I knew that I didn't want I didn't want um, a particular worldview's lexicon mm-hmm. or. Uh, you know, deity uh-huh. to um, potentially create hurdles for someone that didn't view the world the same way. Yeah. So I wanted to create something that was a little more, um, you know, I don't know if universal is the word, but but something that would give other people access points to the narrative. Uh-huh. So that was important to me. Um, but but you know, even while doing it, I didn't know if that would work. Well, just for me, I think it worked brilliantly. But I'm very given to abstract art. I'm very given to surrealist depictions. Uh, you know, I love. We talked about Stranger Things, and and <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, I, I love these things, and and I've always been drawn to to that kind of art. And so, you know, when you had these encounters in the book with God. You actually called him Jack, yeah. <laughs> and when I first read that, I was like, "Wait a minute, I, I think he's referring to. I think this is a spiritual experience he's conveying here." <laughs> I, mean, I was like, "Wait a minute, who's Jack?" You know, I had to go back, and yeah, right. uh, and and then as I got more comfortable with it, I was like, "This is incredibly brilliant," and and I loved the way and and see, I believe that imagination uh, is a clothing for honesty and for truth yeah. it's 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 a way it you know some people look at imagination as over against reality or over against um truthfulness but i think and even in your book you really showcased how imagination actually exemplifies the way that we think in metaphors in in many ways 
Right. Well, and, and, and sometimes our language becomes so rigid and it becomes so practical. Um, and I think depending upon the moment, depending upon the individual, depending upon the subject, that can either serve us well and create meaning or it can actually dilute meaning immensely. Mm-hmm. And so for me, um, you know, I mean, the truth is if someone actually believes in a God, mm-hmm. that's really weird. <laughs> and I do, but that's right. really weird. Yeah. And, and 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 so the question becomes, how can you sum up something you can't understand without imagination? Mm-hmm. Like, how can you talk about that? Mm-hmm. And so to me, it was like, and, and a, a guiding question for me through this, and this is where this is where the book uh, tended to to veer a lot from like a a, bio, a strictly biographical account. In a biography, a lot of times the guiding question is what happened, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. For me, in writing it, the guiding question was what was it like? Yeah, yeah. And it's a completely different question, and it creates completely different parameters. So my ambition was never here's what happened. It was always what was it like? It's good. And and so for me, that's where some of the more fantastical elements came from. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, they they actually can they they make it oddly enough more you know for lack of better terms real absolutely absolutely i'm inspired i think i'm going to just cut the interview off and go right for a while now (laughs) (laughs) it's good (laughs) well you know um uh, one of the things that that i found in the book is that you dealt with both beauty and terror and i think um just as i've I've read some things about you and, and um, for instance, I read this and I think, I don't know if this is from the back of the book or where I, where I found this, but it says, every one of us is both a hero and a monster and the world we inhabit is both beautiful and twisted. We are shaken by changes, losses, gains, insights, desires, mistakes, and transitions. And I find that in in the book that you you deal with beauty and even the way you write it is beautiful, but you also deal with with terror and terrible, very heartbreaking situations. Yeah. And um, I know for me, and I've I've actually been writing about this um, just on my blog recently about dealing with difficult things, but still having a framework of hope to work from. Or uh, you know, like a lot of times, for instance. Um, People in Christian communities, or people in in the in the church body, or in in any kind of you know community of faith, a lot of the expectation, at least from the outside looking in, you would think it has to be very tidy. You have to come to a point. You you've got to bring it home, and <laughs> and art is a lot messier than that. You know what I'm saying? Uh, art is just so much messier than that sometimes. And that, but I I don't think that dealing with dark subject matter means that you have to be working from a framework of despair. And so, when I look at your book and I see both the beauty and the terror in it, uh, and I see a lot of spiritual themes running throughout it, I'm curious. If you could elaborate on that, like how you view working with both beauty and Tara in the same context. Yeah, I mean, I mean, first of all, I just think it's real fun. <laughs> I mean, I mean, to me, it's like kind of straddling those juxtapositions and dichotomies. Like to me, that's where the richness of art comes from. Like as soon as we become, you know, emotionally monochromatic mm-hmm. in anything we're doing, if it's just the happy song, it's like, well, that's that's fine, you know, for like the Radio Disney five-year-old. Mm-hmm. 
if it's like just pure despair, I'm like, well, you know, that that's not really my bag either. But so to me, when there's a richness is when, I mean, it's like, it's like, uh, physics, you know, it's friction. Yeah. Friction is when fire, even artistic fire is made. And so to me, um, I love that not only in ways I, I can't articulate and don't understand. Um, but also that's, I mean, in, you know, maybe in a, in a more just personal way, that's just what inspires me. Yeah. So that's not necessarily what needs to inspire anybody else. But when I, if I were to catalog and take all the movies and television and paintings and sculpture, et cetera, and say, what do these things that move me most have in common? Mm-hmm. There would be more than just that. But one of them, I think, would be that there is a kind of layered sense of occurrence, a layered sense of psychology or emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a complexity that actually seems almost in opposition specifically to you know what you're talking about from maybe a particular you know religious worldview. Um, I was asked a question once in an interview, and someone... Uh, they they were objecting to to not just my writing in Heroes and Monsters, but some of the storytelling I do on stages and mm-hmm. poetry. And they were objecting to some of the darkness, kind of postulating that that was antithetical to a mm. Christian worldview. And and I and I asked them a question. I said, "Well, what what's the most violent, perverse, dark book you've ever read?" Mm-hmm. And they didn't really say anything. And they said, "Well, what about you?" I go, "Well, it's easy. The Bible." <laughs> Without question, I mean, there's more death, there's incest, there's rape, there's people being chopped to pieces, there's countries being incinerated alive. I mean, there's rivers of blood. I mean, I mean, there's there's babies being you know heads crushed on rocks. There's an entire nation of first sons that are dead, and the whole country's mourning. I mean, there's there's demons. I mean, it's 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 messed up. <laughs> it's really messed up. So to me. In the Christian community, I think, or, or in any community, I, I don't understand the leap between someone going, because I'm a Christian, mm-hmm. I therefore can't talk about dark things when the book a lot of that community upholds as, this is what it is. I go, do you realize what's in that thing that you're holding? Mm-hmm. And so my question um, that I have to wrestle with is, if, if I tried to make it as succinct as possible, is, is wholesome the same as holy mm. and to me um, my ambition is not to be wholesome mm-hmm. that's not my ambition maybe that's someone else's but I think there is profound holiness in communicating dark things mm-hmm. I think there can be profound holiness in communicating mourning tragedy you know even just the generic term darkness mm-hmm. and so to me this is a been a process for me because I grew up in a very you know, depending upon where someone is on the spectrum, I, I it was a it was a fairly conservative uh, religious home in in terms of you know from a doctrinal standpoint. So it's been a real journey for me to kind of throw off a false sense of burden and guilt that my inclinations towards some of the things you're talking about when I write mm-hmm. is not not only permissible but wonderful. Mm-hmm. Part of that, what's helped me get there, is distinguishing between a lot of times we have a cultural ambition for wholesome mm-hmm. rather than a cultural ambition towards holy. Mm-hmm. I'm going to sit with that for a while. I think there's a lot in that, but I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I think that that's why you can have uh, some of the violent 
and destructive content uh, that is in the pages of Scripture. And yet, at the same time, uh, there there's this thread of of love, at least in my experience, that keeps wooing me on. It keep it's it's not over against, but it's right in the midst of the stuff, you know. Yeah. And, and I, I think that's good. It's not far removed, but it's it's right in the middle of it all. And I think a lot of times we want something that's far removed when really it's right in the middle of it, you know. Yeah. Well, and and I think there's also something too that I think I I don't know I you know I. Writing, when writing's your vocation, I, I find it, and part of this is just my temperament. I mean, my, my wife tells me sometimes she fears I'm going to become like Gollum. <laughs> but so part of this, part of it is my temperament, but part of it too is writing as a, as a uh, job, you know, for lack of a better term, is um, it's isolating. Uh-huh. And, and I don't know how that applies to, um, you know, the, the musician life. But what that can sometimes create in me is a sense that I am the only voice that needs to carry the entire artistic chorus. Uh Rather than viewing myself as a player in a greater chorus and going, I mean, isn't it a, uh, is it Walt Whitman who says, you know, you can contribute a verse. Uh He says, you can contribute a verse, but he's not saying you can contribute every verse. And so part of it for me as an artist is going, understanding, becoming aware of my voice and going, yeah, maybe I maybe I sing a little bit darker tones, uh-huh. um, but I'm a part of a greater chorus amongst people who sing really bright tones. Right, and they need me. Yeah, but I, when I don't view it though as a as a chorus of people besides me, I can sometimes I think bully myself out of playing my note, uh-huh. trying to play ones that somebody else is already playing or or really been kind of wired to play way better than me. Uh-huh. So there has to be a sense of kind of. Uh, devotion to going how am I wired to create Mm -hmm. yeah that's really good that's really good I love it well I wanted to read a quote from your book and it and it deals with what we were talking about but you said then Jack tells me that this world is actually two worlds combined one world of everything that I hope for and the other world of nothing that I want This world, Jack says, is the merging of wonder and horror, of twisted and beautiful comedy and tragedy, a place where both exist and mingle every day. He says that this world, in part, is in part heaven and part hell, and that every second, inside of me and out, I'm standing at the convergence of the two, at the corner of damned and divine. So beautiful. Thanks, man. Yeah, so good. Well, Josh, I've really enjoyed talking with you, man, and just enjoyed the insights and uh, that you've given. And so I appreciate you being on Makers and Mystics. Oh, man, such, a, such an honor. Such an honor to be with you, man. Thanks so much. All right. Friends, thank you so much for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. The music in this episode is provided by Glass C. And I'll have a link to Glass C on makersandmystics.com as well as a link to joshreebok.com. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram if you haven't done so already. And please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. I wanted to say thank you to Gene Smith, Jonathan Bryans, and to all of our patrons. If you'd like to join our online community, you can go to patreon.com forward slash makers and mystics thanks again everybody we'll see you next time